you know, there's a famous, there's not a famous, but there's a saying that I, I, I say all the time with the children, and I chant it. I say, well, you build your house upon sand, and then they repeat, well, it must fall down. We cannot begin to build in this classroom on a weak foundation. They need to be able to trust me, and I need to know where they are, or I can't act adequately teach them or help them. Yeah. Welcome back to the Neighboring Podcast, where we uh, sit down with our neighbors and friends and people that are inspiring us to uh, simply ask the question, what does it mean to be a good neighbor, and learn what uh, contributes to making a healthy neighborhood healthy. Uh, this has been a year and a half long kind of journey around this conversation and we keep interacting and uh, meeting a lot of really great people, including the person we're going to interview today, Adrian Curry. Welcome to our podcast. Uh, one of the, the highlights relationally for me this year is getting to know you a little bit um, and having some, some really in-depth conversations. And Thanks for coming on the podcast and being willing to... Uh, uh, share your story with us and get to know each other a little bit better in a uh, public kind of environment. I think yeah, yeah. a lot of people need to hear uh, the heart and the spirit behind what you're up to. And so I'm looking forward to learning from you today. Yes, sir. I appreciate you inviting me and I look forward to sharing. Well, uh, I'll allow you introduce yourself. Um, tell us a little bit about what is interesting uh, going on in your life and what you would want people to know about Adrian Curry. Awesome. Well, it's a big question. Though. It is a big question. It's loaded, but I have an answer. All right. That's okay. You know, uh, I guess I should look this way, right? <laughs> yeah. So my name is Adrian Curry. Obviously, um, I was born in Lima, Ohio. I moved to Fort Wayne, Indiana when I was two years old. I went to Ward Elementary School, Memorial Park Middle School, went to Northrop High School for about a year, went to East Detroit, when I moved there with my family. Okay. And that was for two years. Then I moved back to Fort Wayne and I graduated from Southside High School. Uh, I was the number one African-American male that graduated at Southside at the time. That was a big accomplishment for myself. And just to give you a little background, just kind of who I was growing up and then I can get into my latter years or the more recent years and what I'm doing today. I was heavily involved in show choir in the arts, drama, theater, you know, I was on the award-winning show choir team with Betty McKee. She's outstanding. I always give her a shout out because she taught me so much as a little boy. I was a part of Lunch Bunch, Kid Connection, Shades of Friendship. At what age did you get involved in all of that? Seven. Seven, okay. I was seven years old performing. I've been performing my entire life, right. you know. I also loved Michael Jackson, so moonwalking and kicking my leg was a big deal growing up. So that's how I started. Okay. Uh, and my brothers and I, we danced a lot, you know, break dancing, but I didn't spin or anything. We did more so pop blocking, they call it. Other than that, I played Metro football. I was really good at football. I was really small, so I got beat up a lot. <laughs> but my brothers and my dad, they, encouraged me to keep going, and so I played football until I was 17 years old. Okay. I ran track since I was about 11, and I became the number one hurdler in the city in 2011 2012. Okay. I made that up 2007 2008. All right. Man, time is flying. It does. Uh, 2007 2008, I ran the 110 high hurdles and the 300 hurdles, and I was the fastest in the city and being 12th in the state, so that was a big accomplishment yeah. for me as well. Other than that, the biggest thing is I was a student at the Weiser Park Youth Center. 
And at the Wiser Park Youth Center, there were education programs such as the Maya Youth Group, the Dona Wintawaso Percussion Theater. And so I gained a lot of ideas there in what I do today. Not only that, many scholars, world-renowned scholars uh, uh, in the African-American community would come to the Wiser Park Youth Center and teach. At this point, even though I had straight A's, I only had seven B's on my transcript my entire life. Even still, I hadn't read a book. I hadn't read a book. I didn't read a book all through high school. I read the chapters that I was assigned. But I never picked up a book on my own and said, hey, let me read it because I'm interested in what this book has to say. I was never interested until these scholars came. And they began to talk about the greatness of Africa and Egypt and all of these things. People like Anthony Browder, who wrote the books, Contributions to Nile Valley Civilizations. People like Milana Karanga, who invented Kwanzaa. These are people that I had the privilege of, as a youth, you know, 16, 17, 18, sitting down and drinking tea with them and just conversing, you know, and I learned a lot from them. And so that put me on the path to self-discovery and also uh, understanding my history uh, in terms of uh, all the greatness that was accomplished in and who we are as a people, you know, we've been called black and Negro and colored and all these things. And I always wondered, what am I? Because I understood I was brown. Yeah. You know, when I was a little boy, I understood colors. And then I start being called black and I didn't get it because I'm nowhere near black. I just didn't understand, you know. And so this shed light on that. And so at the community center, we would travel abroad to places of the diaspora. So now I've become becoming a little more well-traveled, even though we're poor. You know, I was able to accomplished some traveling here and we went to Trinidad, we went to Tobago, um, and we studied uh, slavery, if you will, all the people that were scattered across the diaspora, across the world uh, in the diaspora. So that was all in school. Now during this time period between 15 to 18, while I was in high school, I taught at the Wiser Park Youth Center while I was a student. I taught the dancers in the percussion theater okay. and then there were drummers. Mr. Ira Kelly taught the drummers. I taught the dancers. Miss Camille Curry, which is my mother, she's, she worked with the spoken word artists. And we would put on original music, original productions. It was an amazing experience, which led me to what I'm doing today. As I enter that time period of my life, once I graduated, I went to Morehouse College. Morehouse College is uh, famous. Uh, it's a prestigious institution, but it produces a lot of leaders. You know, Martin Luther King obviously being the the major leader that we always uh, talk about. We have the King Chapel there. So Martin Luther King is, is a big graduate of Morehouse College. Samuel O. Jackson, Spike Lee, people like that. Yeah. And so I went there with the intention of studying neuroscience or, or learning who I was and, and why the world is the way it is. And I focused on that because I, I just wanted to understand why, why I was treated the way I was treated in the context of society. Now, individually, people are always nice to me, you know. But when it came to going to places like the hospital and things like that, I was always mistreated. And I never understood why, because those were the times where I felt most vulnerable and I needed help. I'm not there because I have someone. <laughs> so, so you're saying, just to clarify on that, um, because see if I'm hearing, so you kind of felt like on a day-to-day -day basis, uh, treated well, like just general friendliness, but when you uh, went to places like hospitals or just sought assistance and things like from your vulnerable state like you're saying there 
you were feeling and mistreated in a different way. Right. Okay. 100%. And you know what? And I'll be quite frank. I was a cute little boy. So, and I didn't have all this hair on my face at the time either. So I was always treated like a cute little boy. Okay. Oh, he's so cute, that kind of thing. Now my brothers, although my brothers were good looking, my older brother's darker skin, and I remember him having trouble. And we used to have conversations about it. And I didn't know what he was really talking about. I didn't get it. But they would always call him things like blackie and things like that. And I knew what they were saying, but it never touched me. You know, so I just, you know, he didn't have, his grades weren't necessarily the same as mine and things like that. So I just didn't understand until I would go into places like the hospital. That's when it really started touching me. That's when I, uh, and then I grew my hair out, see, and that changed everything. I started wearing cornrows. Okay. Cornrows changed. And now we're poor also, so I'm wearing my older brother's clothes. So they're always baggy, yeah. <laughs> you know. And if in the summertime, we didn't get new clothes. We just cut our jeans. And those were our shorts, <laughs> you yeah. know. Even my track uniform when I ran for safe, uh, they were sweatpants that were cut, you know. And so I started learning at a, a kind of a, a relatively young age. Okay, I'm being mistreated. All right, but I don't know why, you know. But I, you can feel it. You can't articulate it. You can okay. just you can only feel it. So so you were feeling because um, I think this is really interesting, or at least something I'm picking up. You're you seem like a very just curious guy from from at an early age. Was a lot of this coming from your just interaction and and having a a sense of awareness or a curiosity as an individual? Uh, were there outside influences that were mm -hmm. helping you kind of understand some of these things? Or like were you picking up on other people's conversations yeah. that, because whether it's the educational aspect, like showing up and as a youth in, in one case saying like, I don't know that I was, I did well in school, but I wasn't really into books but you still were choosing these educational opportunities and then showing up and engaging. And so there's a curiosity that comes with wanting to pursue that. So it, it, you, you nailed it. It was, I was just curious. Okay. I just wanted to know. Once again, uh, I, I'll say it in, uh, you know, I was with the number one show choir. We would go to Cedar Point and, and this is elementary school now. And we would, we would uh, compete against high school students and win. So I was successful. You know, I was always a part of, great things I would say so it didn't hit me uh, the curiosity really hit me uh, when you know I start kind of feeling that mistreatment or you know what it was even hitting I can I can recall being in the third grade and having my friends sit next to me who didn't have such good grades as I did or didn't understand what was going on in class as well as I did and I remember thinking why don't they understand yeah. you know so the curiosity was there but not still not enough to pick up a book the true curiosity hit when I began to learn at the, Maya, uh, at the Weiser Park Youth Center in the Maya Youth Group. That is when, like I said, the scholars would come and speak yeah. directly to us. That's when I said, huh? You know, sure. oh. And so that's when I was inspired to read. Yeah. And that's when it all really started. I was 18 years old. I picked up the book, the first book I ever read at Morehouse College. Believe it or not, I didn't read a book until college. It was the autobiography of Malcolm X. Okay. Now, I tried other books. But the words were too advanced for me. That's when I learned I didn't know English. And then I really understood that the majority of people in my community don't speak English. Because I didn't know, I knew every other word, I knew and and the, and, but other words, I had to circle them, highlight them, 
And then I said, okay, I'm gonna look them up. But it got to the point where in this particular book, it was The Miseducation of the Negro by Carter G. Woodson. I just couldn't understand them. I was like, man, this is a real scholar, I guess. Now that I'm older, I realize, oh, these are words that people use normally. Long story short. Um, so, as a matter of fact, I'll, I'll continue because it, it leads up to today. So you can kind of, yeah. uh, and then we can really get into the nitty gritty of what's going on here. But at Morehouse College, I majored in neuroscience and psychology. And that's when I learned how the central nervous system was developed and I studied behavior. And so I started understanding things a lot more. I end up pledging there and that's when I learned to step. I was already dancing, but then yeah. I learned to step, okay. which is what I do now today. I teach stepping. Um, but there, I was Mr. Freshman. I was, I was relatively popular, uh, but I lacked resources. I couldn't pay my tuition, so I got purged or threatened to be purged every semester, which was a reflection of my grades because even though the beautiful thing about Morehouse College is all the professors look like us, which is something that we don't experience, you know? Sure. And so that was different for me and it made me a little more comfortable, but they were also really serious. And they wouldn't accept any of my grades or any of my assignments, even though they, they would grade them, they just wouldn't put them in a the grade book. So I would know what I received on the assignment, which I got eight pluses on everything. And so they would mark them as zero until my tuition was in. And I still graduated with a 3.95 out of college and that happened to me often. I didn't have a meal plan, I didn't have any food to eat, so my good friends, and I went to school with some, I went to school with Stevie Wonder's children. I went to school with, you know, famous people's children, yeah. you know, and so I had a good friend, he, he doesn't like to be a famous person's child, but I'm still gonna say his name, Tariq Taylor, this is my best friend in school. Uh, he used to sneak sandwiches and food out of the cafeteria so I could eat. You know, I couldn't get my hair done. So it was a very, very rough time period for me. And it taught me a lot. It made me humble. Um, I still maintained my GPA and I learned how to step. I, you know, I just was being broken down in every way. You know, a lot of people I met there were superficial, I felt. And so it inspired me to keep my facial hair long because then I found out who really cared about me because you'll treat me nice no matter what. But when I was shaving and I looked really nice, everyone smiled at me, you know, and I didn't like that because I couldn't discern who was really pro me, yeah. you know, who was genuinely a good person. So long story short, I ended up going to West Africa. I went to Ghana. Once again, I didn't have any money. So I was just making these things happen. I remember writing a scholarship uh, to the United Negro College Fund. It was for disability. But I wrote on the scholarship, I don't have a dad. And I got the money. I went to Ghana, West Africa, and I studied Pan-Africanism and ethnobotany. <laughs> and I went there, and I went to the slave dungeon, the slave castles. I, I, I studied under one of three plant locators in the world who could go to any plant and tell you what it was used for and how to remedy any illness. These are people that I was able to be, uh, to be in contact with. I did a spiritual rebirthing, cer rebirthing ceremony in Ghana, in Tamale, the northern region. I also uh, sat with chiefs of chiefs at the, at the corner of Burkina Faso, Togo, and Ghana. You know, I did, I did so much without much money, without any money, really. You know, I was there, I took all my old clothes and I bartered, that's how I ate. I could, I could, I could barter a polo shirt, which I got from TJ Maxx or my brother gave to me, you know, and I could get a whole drum. 
you know, I could get a whole pineapple. <laughs> you know, I was eating, I was fine, you know. And so I learned how to do things like that. Uh, junior year, I ended up going to Cusco, Peru, and I did a medical internship there across the Amazon River, went up into the jungles, and we treated patients. And I actually taught those children up in the jungle how to step. And they didn't even speak English. And so I learned, I was working on my craft the entire time. I worked on everything. Um, beyond that, I ended up graduating. I had to do a super senior year. Uh, and I'm the first person in my family to go to college, so there are some things, some classes I didn't know uh, would conflict time-wise. And so I had to do an extra uh, semester. And when I ended up graduating, I graduated 2012 in December, but I didn't have my commencement ceremony until 2013. Sure. Long story short, Barack Obama came and he did our commencement ceremony, so that was a highlight. And as I, and as I forward through all of that, I ended up doing, doing a lot of programs in the medical field. Uh, I ended up going to the university, or IUPUI, and I did a master's in medical science. And so I studied the science in the body a little bit more. And I was accepted into the University of Health Sciences Antigua Medical School to the World. But I wasn't able to go because no one in my family had good credit to co-sign for that loan. And so I learned, okay, I got to figure this out. And so the Most High was on me, uh, upon me and he says, build what you've been working on your whole life, which was the percussion theater. And now I am here today, having founded the Art Leadership Center about a year and a half ago. What a journey. Thanks for sharing uh, the brief, <laughs> right. the brief section of that. Um, I'm curious as I was listening to all of that, like what... And, the, and specifically, like you're, you're talking through college of, you know, on one hand, feeling like you're, you're really excelling and performing well at education and things you're putting your time and energy to, mm -hmm. whether it was education and uh, pursuing uh, additional knowledge, whether it was the stepping in the performance aspect of the thing you were interested in while still feeling like there was this weight or uh, the lack of reward for performing well. Right. Like what kind of tension... You kind of spoke about it briefly, but I'm really curious about what that tension creates and what do you, how do you get through that? How do you deal with that? Like, it's like you're working really hard and you're performing and there's, you're getting the grades, you know, or you're getting the response, but it doesn't end up in, well, it, turning into something. You, 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 yeah, oh man, it, you, you, I feel a little emotional because, uh, it, helps me understand it helped me understand who I am and what I'm made to do within the context of what's going on right now in society that's when I truly realized what black meant I got it I figured it out even within my own community you know I went to school with rich children you know and they were wealthy and they were you know they saw me as poor and they treated me as such you know and it hurt it, it, it hurt deep, but I was also talented and they couldn't beat me in the classroom. <laughs> so I knew that it, it made me, um, I don't know, I, I, I'm a spiritual being, I suppose. And so I would meditate and I, I understood. I just tried to understand. And if I couldn't understand, then I would be more frustrated, but I could understand. And so I realized all I can do is keep pushing through. Luckily, I, have a, I had a great support system not financially, yeah. but morally, yeah. you know, and, and so that it was, that was big. Um, and then I had a lot of people that came out of nowhere that helped me with opportunities. I don't, you know, for instance, I did 10 hours of research 
every week while I was in college at the Morehouse School of Medicine and in the Neuroscience Institute working with rats and mice. If it wasn't for Dr. Katema Paul, I don't know, you know, if without his support, I don't know how I would have gotten through, but it was people like him, you know, you know, they were, they were far and they were far and few in between, however they say that, but um, that's what really helped me get through. I had a good friend ask me that same question. Another thing that helped me get through was the music that I listened to. The music, the music taught me. I don't listen to rap. I listen to a lot of Rasta music, uh, reggae, Bob Marley. And Bob Marley tells it. He just says it straightforward, you know? And so I understood. And I understood, you know, his plight in life, you know? And so that motivated me. Remember, I was already connected to the scholars. So because I was connected to them, I had already learned what was going on for the most part, you know? And through my experiences, I knew, I knew the story of Malcolm X. You know, I, that was the first book I read. So I knew that I would probably go through some things too. I knew the story of Martin Luther King. So I figured, okay, well, I'll probably go through some things like that too. Sure. So you took all of those experiences and take, took your ambition and drive and created this Art Leadership Center. Yes, Describe sir. the Art Leadership Center to, awesome. to those listening. Well, the Art Leadership Center is designed to systematically develop Renaissance scholars and artists with a global conscience that embody the five worlds of leadership. Well-read, well-spoken, well-dressed, well-traveled, and well-balanced. Yeah. So all of that, right? It, what I'm really saying is through service, science, and art, we are developing cultural leaders that will bridge gaps. Whether we use the art form of stepping or wrestling or gardening, whatever it is, we wanna bridge gaps. Because what's happening is we're all a part of the earth. <laughs> and I think we tend to forget that we share the same air, we share the same waters. Yes, there's differences. Yeah. Well, there's different trees too, yeah. you know? But we all produce a particular fruit. And so what I've learned is I want to produce the fruit that I'm supposed to produce while learning about the fruit that others produce. And then we trade fruit. And that's the bottom line. We want to build together or else we will destroy together. You know, you, you, don't, you may not like some, the way someone looks. You may not like the way someone thinks. You will not always like those things, you know? And that's okay because if you realize the big picture, these are vessels. These are vehicles and they will die, but we will not die. You know, we will move on. We will transform into what we are. We, you know, they say energy is not created nor destroyed, right? It just changes form. Well, that, that's true for us as well. It's like a vehicle. You have an old car, the car might need some fixing up, but once that car dies, you get another one <laughs> or you try to get another one, yeah. you know? And so, uh, I don't know. I don't know how this, how long this flesh will last. I know I, I fractured my spine. I've been through a lot physically, and so I realized you know, everyone's going to pass away. Well, what can I do while I'm in this vehicle? What can I do to make the world a better place? You know, and I've been upset about things. You know, about racism and things like that. But I also learned why. There's a reason for it all. Yeah. And everyone's not educated. So that means even if someone is racist, that don't mean they know why. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know? And so then I have to understand, well, let me study their teachers. Mm. Let me study their scholars. What do they know? And then I figure out why, you know? And so what we, what we really want to do is, and what I feel like the Art Leadership Center will play a role in, is bridging gaps. 
Yeah. You know, I'm not a big political person, mm -hmm. but I also know that I want the air to be clean. I mean, it's just a simple thing that I know I want, and I want water to be clean. I want my children to no longer eat Takis for breakfast. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I mean, it's just really that simple. Other than that, I want to put on a great production. <laughs> yeah. So the Art Leadership Center, all of the things you just described, manifests itself through youth-oriented programming yes, and arts, culture, primarily dance programming. Right. Like the performance aspect of like, if you were to interact with our leadership center in the public setting, you're probably going to see a performance of some sort, right? Right. So ages anywhere from five to eighteen, really. Boom! Right? You hit it on the head. Uh, describe like the programming, like what get some of the the nuts and bolts. How do kids get involved? What do they experience on a on a typical practice? How many days a week? Those types of things. Awesome, awesome. Thank you for that. Uh, well, I'll tell you this: we're grassroots. Yeah. So many systems not in place, so many things that I intend to put in place which are not there yet. Yeah. So I'll tell you where we are and I can tell you where I ultimately want to go. Sure. Uh, right now, we have steppers. Steppers. Okay. Um, between 15 to 25 students per session. We have four sessions a year, fall, winter, spring, summer. Uh, there's no website right now. Uh, Facebook is the primary mode of, of marketing and all of that good stuff. And that's how you would reach me also, the Art Leadership Center on Facebook. That's the best way to reach me. Or you could call me, you know, which is 260-206-847. Yeah, we'll link all this stuff on the, <laughs> on the podcast so you can, you can get it if you're listening. Awesome. So, you know, that's, that's how you would reach me. Um, we have practice Tuesday, Thursday, and Friday, 3.30 to 7.30. That's our schedule. What happens is, just to tell you a basic day at the Art Leadership Center, students come in at 3.30, we have a study table. They get their homework done. That's primary, you know, get your work done. Everyone is required to have straight A's. Mm. Why? Because I got straight A's. It's really that simple and I know how to get straight A's. It doesn't take a rocket scientist. It just takes some stability mm. and some focus. You know, it's not that the homework is so difficult. It's just that life is so difficult and I don't want to do my homework. Or I'm at school and I was at my aunt's house last night until two o'clock in the morning and now I'm in school and I can't focus, you see? So not, or, I don't understand the question. Remember, most quote unquote African-American students do not speak the English language. It seems that way, but they don't. So it's really unfair a lot of the times you're asking them questions, they're staring at you, they know you said words, yeah. or even they read it on the standardized test, but they don't know what discern means. They don't know what imply means, you know? They don't know what deduce means. They're guessing. Yeah. They don't know what you're asking. Now, if you ask them directly in their language, they can answer it. And so I, I, I work with them on that. So if they have any questions during that study table time period, I help them with that. Boom, at about, that's 3.30, about five o'clock, most of my students are arriving. That's when I start a lecture. And there is a curriculum set in place, but I've learned uh, right now, especially within the early stages, that sometimes I have to see where they are before I start teaching. You know, I teach them very advanced things. It might be the development of the central nervous system. And they're, they're learning these things, but sometimes I have to teach them about putting grease on their lips. Sometimes I have to teach them about how to deal with anger and frustration. You know, I have to talk in depth about these things because I can tell them be good, be good, be good. Learn this, learn this, learn this. They can't think. Sometimes in class, matter of fact, most of the time I'll say, Whose back is hurt today? Who's feeling pain today? Mm. I'll say, who got cussed out this morning? I can almost assure you that the majority of the students have been yelled at by someone. Yeah. 
And so they're, they're not usually having the best day, nine times out of 10. If I can address that first, then we can have a better class. And then I'll begin to teach. They're required to sit right up. Why? Because growing up, I, people never taught me the health of the spine. And so I wanted them to learn the health of the spine and how this is generates the power to even think in the first place, right? And you don't, you don't think about these things, but if you're not sitting up straight, you're really not paying attention as much as you think. You're beginning to slump down, you're beginning to get sleepier and sleepier, your posture is decreasing, and now the, the electrical signals that are coming from the brainstem, from the spine to the brainstem to the cortex, you're not receiving them. So you, now the cortex is your conscious mind. <laughs> You're not really thinking at optimal levels, so let's keep it up. Now I tell myself, <laughs> everyone around the table is uh, <laughs> stretching, <laughs> stretching into a good posture right, right now. Right, you realize, and, and I catch myself doing, especially I have spinal injury, so I catch myself doing. Okay, let's yeah. start there, and it changes everything. Mm. Now I feel like a good student. I have some pride. Yeah, I, you know, I'm learning. I feel good about everything, and so uh, that's 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 uh, maybe I say stage two of the day, and then what we do is we warm up. That's when I give them a break and then they line up and we start our practice, get ready for our show. Now, obviously through that art form, I'm still teaching, yeah. teaching life skills the entire time. Now we were implementing new programs as well. So uh, we implemented the gardening program this past summer, which was fantastic. Um, we just started, we put some seeds in the ground, we put some plants in the ground and we got some crops and we got some produce and we fed uh, some of our families some of the crops didn't work out, didn't feed as many as I would like to, but it was the beginning of that. They got to dig some holes and get in the garden. Many of them were very afraid of worms and dirt. And now, I mean, by the end of the program, they're, they're standing in the mud and in the rain. We're gardening in the rain, listening to music and, and having a great time. So that's primarily where the Art Leadership Center is. The big picture, we're working on a global percussion theater. So we need drums which we don't have, we're working on that right now. Our hands and our feet are the percussion. Yeah. Uh, drums, uh, obviously the stepping part, there'll be spoken word involved, uh, and we'll just be putting on productions. Yeah. And that's the big picture. So there'll be education portion, then yeah. there'll be the art portion. For, for those who aren't familiar with step, I'm sure many of us have seen step played out and seen a step-oriented performance, but we don't know, let's just educate help educate myself, if nothing else. Describe step as, a, uh, as an art form. Excellent, well, stepping, ah man, it's a militant art form. It's a very militant art form. Everything is mechanical. A lot of people say step dance and they don't realize we're not dancing. It, that's just bottom line. Dancers move more fluidly and there's more rhythm involved. Although there are rhythms in steps, it's very mechanical, boom. Boom, 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 same thing, over and over and over. Move quick, you know, we mug, right? And so I'll give you some of the history, the historical components of stepping, just like if you were dancing the Latin style or this or that, everything has a historical component, even why it was created in the first place. So stepping, a lot of people will say it originated with the gumboot dancers of South Africa. They were in the mines and they were forced to work in there. They weren't allowed to talk, so they would begin to communicate with their boots. Mm. And they would smack on their boots and communicate uh, similar to how the slaves in the United States of America, they say, will communicate through Negro spirituals, if you will. Very similar. But that's not true. The American form of stepping is not done anywhere else in the world. And so, and I had to study this because I'm like, why do you keep saying it's from Africa and they don't step like us? Okay. You know, they just don't. And so I learned that it's an indigenous American art form that 
we have been doing since forever. It's very old. It's ancient, and and it was just a it's a war dance. It's like a it's like a you know you do rain dance. It's a, yeah. it's like a warrior dance, and it's very hard on the body. You're stumping. It's a high impact. Yeah. It's a lot of energy. It's very dynamic. It's very difficult to do, and then the mugging aspect comes in. Uh, because, and I'll give you a perfect example, at Morehouse College, people would come to burn down the school. And so we would link arms. And when we would link arms, we would make faces at the people coming to burn our schools down because they were looking at us and, uh, and with ugly faces, if you will. So we yeah. would mimic them. Yeah. And we would mug at them. And it was really to scare them off so that they don't burn our school down. And so that's the historical context. And now it's something that's really big all across the United States. It's becoming really, really popular. And it's mostly used to compete. Uh, most, there's a lot of step competitions in the United States now. Uh, but, and there's a lot of different styles. Yeah. And so it's a very sacred art form in which, because it's so competitive, you don't usually let people see your steps. Okay. And so there's battles. If you've ever yeah. seen Stump the Yard, yeah. it's a good representation, but not realistic. Okay. You know? Sure. But there's battles. Yeah. And so two teams will come up to each other, and there's a three-step battle. And that is, uh, that's the, the, the deepest part of stepping are those battles. But in college, you'll find that a lot of people pledge when they step. Yeah. And so that's how that comes about. I stepped. I pledge with a stepping fraternity. All fraternities are not based on stepping, but most of them step. Okay. Versus my organization, we only stepped. Okay. <laughs> so that's why I still yeah. teach it. it. It's ingrained in me. And uh, shout out to my G5 side brothers, Blackout, <laughs> right? G5, Blackout, right? They, they are the ones who gave me the style of stepping that I use. And I find it to be the best style, obviously. I have to say that. But, but honestly, the step team that I stepped for, we are we're the seven-year champs my year. We had won every year against all the teams in the Atlanta University Center, which is Morehouse, Spelman, Clark Atlanta, Morris Brown, ITC. We were the best. We were also the honors dorm, which is, so we were the nerds. We were the researchers. We were those guys. And so they hated losing to us, right? Yeah. And then beyond that, uh, uh, we stepped on its uh, center stage in Atlanta, Georgia. It was called Best Step Team of America, and, and we won that as well. All right. So we, we really do have a, a great stepping style. and and our philosophies and principles uh, create leaders. Yeah. And so that's when I realized, oh man, why didn't you teach me this when I was seven? Yeah, one of the things that, uh, that really captures me um, in our conversations and, and you're describing all of this is, is I really f been around a lot of different youth programming um, in all kinds of different, whether it's sports or educational or after school or um, under-resourced communities, youth programming right. and stuff. And it, it really seems like you're taking a much different approach um, to that and so it was really refreshing and very interesting yes. um, to me because I, I see more than I see the programming and the activity the maybe the production aspect but it's all of those other things that you were describing in terms of um, the, the homework the education aspects but not just like having a time to get your homework done but let's break this down let's discuss it or you know really checking in with kids and having an honest and vulnerable transparent of right. saying like we need to speak about this, we need to address this, we need to acknowledge that it's present in our room today, and, or, and it, it will be a barrier unless we address it 
to move forward. Can't do anything. Yeah. You know, there's a famous, there's not a famous, but there's a saying that I, I, I say all the time with the children, and I chant it. I say, well, you build your house upon sand, and then they repeat, well, it must fall down. We cannot begin to build in this classroom on a weak foundation. They need to be able to trust me, and I need to know where they are, or I can't ad adequately teach them or help them. Yeah. You know, so I really need to know whose stomach hurts. Yeah. Sometimes I don't have a solution, yeah. but I'll say, well, when you're in this situation, it's mind over matter at this point, you have to get through it. Mm -hmm. You know, one of the things that we talk about in the classroom are birthdays, you know, I'm not highly keen on birthdays because it celebrates the ego, especially with children who are have-nots. So by the time we keep saying, hey, be a doctor, be a lawyer, but they're gonna go to school and they're not gonna have any money. They're not gonna have any food. And so when their birthday comes, they're gonna quit because they're, they're not gonna feel loved or the, the, thing, the, the, the amount of love they feel that she, they should have. I don't believe you should celebrate the child's ego the way that we do because it's not realistic for what they're gonna go through. If it wasn't for me, I was just a strong little boy. I told mom, I don't want to celebrate my birthday. You know, she was really upset and things like that. But I found that I had the worst days of my life yeah. because I never, I watched everyone else have these amazing birthdays and I didn't. Yeah. You know, I had these expectations, they were so high and I didn't realize how strong it made me until I went to school and I was alone and or I was in Africa or on the plane alone going to Africa, right? And I was just alone and I realized if it wasn't for me developing that strength, to be alone or to feel unloved and still accomplish things while feeling unloved, yeah. then I would never have pushed through, which is why the majority of the inner city children will not push through because a lot of times our parents, they feel so bad because they know that reality, so they wanna shower them with this and that, but it's really bad for business because now they're actually not gonna have the strength, the, the emotional and spiritual strength to push on or the mental capacity to see themselves as being great even though their stomach hurts. Yeah. It's a really important thought to think about. You know, what, Of all the things you've been working with youth over the years, what are some of the biggest things we're missing as a community when it comes to youth development through whatever activity we're using to connect with them? Uh, as far as community involvement? Just think about like, what are we, there's no shortage of youth activities. Whether you're resourced or under-resourced, there's opportunities that many kids can access in some fashion. Right. And or there are educated, very passionate, very caring people trying to develop youth through some sort of programming. Mm -hmm. From your experience and the way that you're approaching it and seeing uh, kids respond, because you've been involved with youth programming in a lot of different ways and now you're creating your own, right. what, what do you feel like youth programming is missing or has mm -hmm. been missing uh, in the way we approach kids? Is it simply just stopping and acknowledging the vulnerabilities? Are there other things that if you were to inspire other youth programming that may be on the fence of whether you're feeling like you're making an impact mm -hmm. or a difference, what would you encourage them with? That's or a great question. Like that is really a, a, and a well-written question. I would say this, believe it or not, children like to know the truth. When I was young, I felt, I was upset with a lot of my teachers and mentors because they were not telling me the truth. And even sometimes the truth is not comfortable. It's just not. Yet, they appreciate it when they get older. They can make a sound decision, whether they're Caucasian, whether they're African, whether they're Asian, whether they're European, doesn't matter. Whatever that truth is, it's important to be able to discuss it in a safe environment. And I think that really 
makes the children love you. They appreciate you. They know that they know that it's a difficult topic, yet they begin to understand what's going on. So now instead of you saying, hey, get good grades, be, they know why. They know why. Okay, for instance, they hear their parents, everybody wants to talk about the president or, you know, they might have this negative thing to say about this or that. No one ever explains to them why. And so you create these, these stereotypes in their head. You create these notions in their head without any explanation. So now when they go to school, they're mistreating other children. They're doing all these things because they don't understand even what you were talking about in the car on the ride home. Or for instance, you're playing music. Yeah. I'll never forget when I was a little boy, I was singing the, the thong song by Cisco. I had no idea what it meant. Yeah. Thong, the thong, thong, thong. I mean, we were just singing and singing. My dad turned around in the back seat and said, don't sing that. Do you, know what, do you know what you're saying? And I said, no, sir. I don't know what I'm saying. Yeah. And when he taught me what it was, although an inappropriate song, I knew why I didn't want to say that. I didn't want to say it. Yeah. You know, for instance, Takis taste good. But the truth is they're putting holes in people's stomachs. Do you still want the Taki? Let them make their own decision yeah. instead of just feeding them the Taki. Yeah. Now, there are snacks that we give to the children. I don't think they're the healthiest snacks, but I let them know, I don't think these are healthy. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I would prefer we have a healthier snack. I feel like when we discuss the truth about things, no matter what the topic is, the children are, are more well-rounded, they develop better, and they don't have as many prejudices you know, for instance, I have uh, a plethora of uh, my classes relatively diverse and we talk about things on every spectrum, on every side of things. And so, so say we're talking about the African-American community. There are things that we know we do. I'll talk about it. You know, I'll talk about some things we say at the, the family picnic, yeah. you know, and I give them context because even though they're a part of that culture, they don't know what their Uncle Joe is talking about. Yeah but they see it all the time, they hear it all the time, and that's what they're emulating. So then by the time they get older, you know, they get mistreated in the world for these, this and that, and they don't realize it really wasn't okay to begin with. Now, I say a lot of times, you know, for instance, in, in our community, what ends up happening is um, we talk to each other a particular way, like even say using the N-word. Okay, well, what's the N-word? What's the etymology of the N-word? Why shouldn't we use it? Or why should we use it? You know, is it really okay? Is it not okay? They just need to know some, they just need to be able to walk through some of those truths. And my biggest thing is this, and I'll, and I'll finish with this. It's the major thing I teach all students. Do not believe anything I say. That is critical. Because I'm talking. You, I teach them how to study. Go find the information. It's not always as simple as looking on Google, but let's start there at least. Yeah. Sure. And then when you go find information, then you'll have a reason why you believe in something versus Mr. Curry said it. Yeah. Don't believe what I say. Go study it. Matter of fact, please contest it. I'm teaching them to be critical thinkers and not be afraid to, even though I'm the teacher, I believe it's a divine dance. Yeah. You're going to teach me how to teach you better. And I'm going to be learning how to teach you better, right? And while at the same time, yeah. you know. Maybe I, as a teacher, it's to introduce thought and give ideas and defend your position and invite critical thinking to that. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I believe I, I can only guide you. Yeah, right. And I'm not right all the time. I don't even know. I truly don't know. And that's the thing about a person that is really into research and information. The more you get into it, the more you realize you don't know. Yeah. 
You know, I can say a lot, but I don't know. Yeah, it's the challenge is often, uh, I'm a parent of three kids, my wife and I, and when she's a clinical social worker, and she, the, your thought about like telling kids the truth is something we've, I've learned a lot from my wife working with kids with uh, terminal illness and death and dying and all mm. these types of things. Yeah, and yeah. recognizing like the, the science behind educating and communicating to children and where they're at and what we think and when we're holding information or we're not using correct or more direct language, how that builds an improper thought in, in childhood. Um, whether it's like, you know, the difference between, you know, Grandma Smith passed away or uh, versus Grandma Smith died. Like being correct, like there's different age and there's different brackets for this in terms of how much and how much kids even want to know. But right. using truth in the, the proper language, we often get fearful for speaking clearly and directly. And kids want to know because they're going to figure it out eventually or they're going to come back and say, well, she passed away. What does that mean? Where are we coming? Or maybe a year later and you've used some terminology that yeah. wasn't concrete yeah. and they question it and then you have to teach them and they come back to you. Why didn't you just tell me that? Why didn't you just tell me that? Up front. You know, and, and you want, and, and you know, <laughs> they're, they're very intelligent. Yeah. yeah. Already, it's already on TV. I mean, it's in Caillou. Yeah. I mean, some of the most controversial things are right there in their face every single day. Yeah. And so, they're already being taught, yeah. you know? And so we, we're fearful a lot of times, but I get to the point where I'm like, well, you're already exposed to it. I need to help you have some type of understanding yeah. of what you're seeing, you know, even to where the way people dress, sure. you know? I have students, you know, and I hate to say it, but they're exposed to nakedness. Mm. They just are. And so I have to think, okay, do I just block it out and act like, no, they never saw that but they're never going to be the same. Mm. So if I'm going to help this child, I'm going to have to bring some type of context to what they're seeing, you know? And like I said, the biggest thing is to let them know that I don't know everything, Yeah. you know? And I don't want you to take what I say and, and stamp it like, that's just it. Cause Mr. Curry said this because you res highly respect me. Yeah. No, this is, this is my take on it. And I'm going to guide you to go look some things up. And matter of fact, this is what they'll do. They'll come back. They'll all have different research. And I'll say, okay, well, she said this. She said this. He said this. Yeah. What do we think? Yeah. You know, and, and then we'll go home and, and that's what we'll sit on. And, you know, I just feel like we create a better relationship to where I can continue to guide them even though yeah. they get, they're getting older. Yeah. You know, they allow me to continue to guide them. And they, they've seen me do things that... You know, I might eat a bag of chips. They wear me out. <laughs> oh, man, Mr. Curry, you know them chips aren't healthy. Yeah, you sure. know? It, well, at least I told you. <laughs> you know? So. Uh, as we move towards wrapping up, I really would love to hear your thoughts on, you know, either one of these questions or a little bit on both. But in your context, like neighborhoods, you know, what, what makes a healthy neighborhood healthy? And even the context, we can look at like a physical neighborhood. But I've been really trying to ask that question to different people from different contexts and using neighborhood as where you do the most of your life or where you're in community with others. Um, and so curious from your perspective, what makes a healthy neighborhood healthy in that context? And then ultimately what makes, what does it mean to be a good neighbor in that neighborhood? Got you. Well, I'm a firm believer that it takes a village to raise a child. 
And if someone doesn't feel safe in their neighborhood, then we're already stunting the growth of our children in the future. Um, feeling safe is critical. Health comes in many ways, whether it's from the trash being cleaned up on the block or the cul-de-sac, wherever you are, uh, or from neighbors being able to communicate with one another. You know, some neighbor, you know, we're to the point where we, we lock our doors with four or five locks at this point because we feel like our neighbors will do something to us, you know, but cleaning, I believe, and just like the ancients believed, whether you want to look at the ancients of Egypt or look at the ancients of Europe, Plato, Aristotle, they all understood that the thought was the concrete and the manifestation of the thought is the action. They also understood that the environment taught the subcortical regions of the brain. And so what we put around ourselves is what we're ultimately going to think and automatically do because the conscious mind, which is the cortex, is only about an inch to two inches thick. That means the majority of the mind is automatic. And so we want to put good frequencies around. The music is a critical thing, especially in the African-American community, because we are moved by the drum. And before we listen to any words, we listen to the drum. And so because of that, there is a particular frequency that the neighborhoods need clean food, clean music, clean water, clean air, clean streets, clean individuals. And so, although that is a daunting task, yeah. it is the reality. It's the, the clean environment creates the better neighborhood. The clean, the clean mind, the clean temple creates the, uh, the better human. You know, it's just the bottom line. If I put a bunch of toxins in my body, I'm probably not going to be the best guy that day. My stomach's going to hurt, I'm going to be grouchy, I might snap on you a couple times. But if I feel really good and light and clean, then I might uplift a lot of people that day, you know. And so being clean, I think, is a holistic thing. So, you know, some people are going to be able to help with the trash. And so that means we have to work together. Yeah. Some people will be able to help with the trash. Some people will be able to help with the, the psychology of it. Some people will be able to help with the music of it all. Some people will be able to help fix up blight communities. Um, or blight homes, and that makes a difference. Being proud of where you live. So I don't mean to be long-winded, but I believe that the clean environment is ultimately what we need everywhere. And it will change the mentality of everyone. Yeah. Adrian, thank you so much for joining me on this episode of the podcast. I love our conversation. Thanks for making me think uh, more critically and deeper. Uh, about that and encouraging me to engage uh, with a lot more questions and curiosity um, with the people around me. Oh man, thank you so much for having us. Um, the Art Leadership Center, I'm sure they would say thank you also because getting our, our message out there is big and, and building a positive relationship with NeighborLink is big for us. Yeah. Thank you so much. Yeah, Adrian. Andrew. Thank you for uh, tuning into this episode of Neighboring with Adrian. I hope that there are some thoughts and questions and things that made you think at the end of this. Certainly did um, myself. And so check out the Art Leadership Center. Uh, they have a performance coming up. Um, and if not, follow them on Facebook and make sure you get to the next uh, statement I or the next performance because I think uh, you will be really surprised about how Adrian interacts with the students and the kids and and the energy that they bring to their performance. It's, uh, it's next level. So, Thank you so much. Uh, until next week on the next episode of Neighboring. Have a good week.